Good morning, Christ City. Well, I want to begin today by just providing a little bit of context to the passage that we read in our scripture reading, and then actually going back and reading the whole passage together. What I want to say is that as we catch up to the disciples on the Emmaus road, we need to realize that Jesus has just been crucified. And all the disciples knew it, and everybody in Jerusalem knew it, and many had seen it happen. And with Jesus' death, all of their hopes and their longings that they had placed on Jesus came crashing down. All their hopes that he would be the one who would bring justice to the, to the oppressed. All their hopes that he would be the one to topple the corrupt religious establishment and free them from their political oppressors that were occupying their lands. All their hopes that Jesus would be the one who would rule as the king that the Bible had promised, that God had promised in his word uh, for millennia before. All their hopes that he would come to make things new. It all came crashing to the ground with his death. But when we come to Luke 24, little do do these disciples know that Jesus Christ has already been resurrected from the dead. They don't know that yet. They're pondering uh, that question. In Luke 24, 13, we catch up with them and we read this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, he answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen Visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Christ City, as Jesus speaks to these disciples, he shows them from the Bible that every longing, every hope, every anticipation for a better future, every foreshadowing of a coming Savior pointed to and anticipated Jesus' death and his resurrection And only through his death and resurrection would result in glory and triumph. This morning, we're going to look along with the Emmaus Road disciples at who Jesus is as the one who was promised, prophesied Jesus. The one who was promised long before he arrived. We're going to look at the way that he is the fulfillment of all of our longing as well as all of theirs. 
Now, you and I, of course, aren't on a long road and a long journey on foot to Emmaus, so our time is going to be somewhat restricted. We can't go in depth into all of these things, into all of the scriptures that prophesy Jesus. But I do want to show you three things. I want to show you that Jesus came to us in fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament to fulfill three roles necessary for our salvation. The role of prophet, the role of king, and the role of priest. So first, jump in with me and let's look at the way that Jesus has come to fulfill the much-needed role of prophet. So we need to ask right away, it's not necessarily intuitive to us, what is a prophet? What is the biblical idea of a prophet? Well, a prophet, according to scripture, is someone who reveals the truth of God to us. Someone who speaks the word of God as light into the midst of our own human darkness. In Christ City, we need that light. After all, this world trips over itself with competing answers to life's big questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? How should I live my life? Why do bad things happen? Is there good? What is good? Is there evil? What is evil? Where do I fit in this world that I live in? These are important questions. But who will you trust to answer them for you? Who will you trust to guide you into truth? Do you know the answers? Do you and your experience and your intellect have what is needed to plumb the depths of these mysteries to arrive at solid ground from which to build your life upon? Do you know the truth? Can you find it on your own? And if not, who will you trust to tell you? Who will you trust to answer these questions for you? Well, Christ City, here's the bad news. The Bible claims that these answers are not things that you and I can find out on our own. The Bible teaches that we depend on God, our maker, to reveal the answers to us so we can know from him, our creator, how to live in this world. But the good news is this. On the other hand, the good news is that God has not left us in the dark, but that he has spoken in his word in the Bible, that he's revealed to us his truth, that he did that through his prophets. And in the Hebrew Bible and in the mind of the Jews living through the time of Jesus, one prophet stood head and shoulders above the rest, and his name was Moses. Moses was the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible as he heard uh, from God and understood what God was revealing to his people and wrote it down uh, for his people. Moses was the one who received the law of God and gave it to the people. Moses was the one that God used to rescue his people from Egypt and bring them out of slavery and to bring, him, uh, bring them towards Sinai and then towards the promised land. And yet, even in the law that Moses wrote, Moses prophesied that he wasn't it. That one would come who was better than he was. A greater prophet would come to fulfill what it meant for God to speak in truth to his people. We read about that prophecy in Deuteronomy verse 18. Chapter 18, verses 15, and then also 17 to 18. And Moses wrote this. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, Christ City, if the prophets were people like Moses who spoke the words of God to the people of God, we need to realize that Jesus did better than that. 
Jesus, when he comes in fulfillment of this role of prophet, bringing truth to the people of God, he didn't just speak the words of God. Jesus was the word of God incarnate. The word of God in human flesh coming to show us in his very life the truth of God as he lived as God, revealing God to us. He spoke and he lived and he breathed and he existed intimately with us, definitively revealing truth because we could see it in him. God, who is truth incarnate, speaking and living with us. John chapter 1 verse 17 says it this way. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now imagine for a moment that we didn't have Jesus. What would our communication be like with God? Well, one way of thinking about it would sort of be like a one-dimensional pen pal relationship where, where God writes and, and communicates to us. And of course, pen pal relationships do happen and people do get to know one another through written communication, but uh, not very well. There's something lacking in the fullness of that communication, the fullness of understanding the truth of who the person they're communicating with is. For us today, now we have Zoom. And Zoom is, on one way of looking at it, better than just a written communication. But as I know that you feel right now, you realize that even Zoom is not sufficient to bring the fullness of a relationship and a fullness of communication of truth from one person to another person. It's insufficient. So what's required then for a fullness of intimacy and relationship and communication of truth? Well, as we all long for and feel deep in our hearts, it requires face-to-face -face communication. A real relationship face-to-face. But Christ, that is what Jesus has done for us as the truth of God come to us in flesh. The one that Moses prophesied would come to speak to us in a better way than even he could. Jesus, the word of God, he shares our flesh and he comes to us as God, as a human being. There's a really awesome passage I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. And this passage is one of the, the most uh, perfect passages explaining the way that Jesus communicates a better word to us, a better truth to us than even all of the prophecies in the Old Testament. And it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. You see, Jesus Christ is a truth that God has spoken into our darkness. He's the light that reveals our purpose from creator God communicating to us who we are, what we're called to live for, and drawing us into relationship with the one who is truth, God himself. So Jesus is a true and better prophet who reveals God's truth, but he's more than that. He's also the prophesied king who the Bible promises will come to finally bring justice and peace. So look with me at our second point. Jesus has come as a true and better king. Consider this. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, they longed for justice and they longed for peace. And I'm wondering this morning, do you long for the same things? Do you long for ethnic and social and economic divisions to be healed in this world? Do you long for the wicked to be punished, 
for the righteous to be vindicated, for wrongs to be made right? Do you long for an end of oppression? Well, so does God. In the Bible, he's prophesied to make all things in this world right. How? By appointing a king, a human king who would be good, who would be righteous, who would do what is just. In Psalm 72, we read about this king. Psalm 72 is written by Solomon, who is the son of the most famous king in the Bible, King David. And to King David, God had promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he'd promised that actually God's plans to make this world right would happen through one of David's great, 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 great grandchildren who would reign on his throne, who would be the king who would come to make all things right. And then later on in Psalm 72, as David's son Solomon reflects on that promise, he writes this beautiful prayer, this beautiful promise, uh, prophecy anticipating and praying for the one who would finally come as the king. It's really a beautiful, beautiful psalm about King Jesus. Uh, and I just want to read to you a portion of it from verse 8 and also verses 11 to 14. Solomon prays this. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I want to stop just here for a moment and point out, actually, since it was just Canada Day a few days ago, that in verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea was actually the inspiration for the Latin phrase on Canadian coat of arms, which says, ad mare usque ad mare, from sea to sea, and kind of points back to even the Christian beginnings of Canada. But I'll continue. That's just an aside. That's for free this morning. Uh, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In verse 11, may all kings fall down before him. May all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. How beautiful is that? This picture of this king who would come in righteousness, but who would be righteous in his justice, in his mercy, and his compassion, even counting it precious as he hears the cries of those who are hurting and suffering and knowing that their blood is spilled, but he is reaching out to care for them and to bring an end to oppression. Well, who will this king be? Well, of course, it's Jesus. It's the God-man, the God-king, the son that the Bible says was born to Mary. Just as the angel spoke to Mary and told her about what would happen in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 32. And in that passage, we read this. The angel speaks to Mary and says, Behold, you will conceive in your, room, in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In Christ City, after millennia of oppression in this world that is broken and marred by sin, Jesus finally arrives on earth as the king. And through his death and resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he began his rule in the hearts of his people in his church. His kingdom is not of this world, but he has begun ruling from heaven in his church. 
He began ruling in his people as people began to meet Jesus. Sinners coming to repentance and coming to faith in Jesus and know his mercy and his great love and to begin to submit to his rule, not the rule of their own sinful hearts, but to submit to his love, to be changed as the love of God was poured into their hearts through the Holy Spirit through Jesus' reign. His kingdom has begun and it has not stopped. You see, Christ said it was Christians in this world millennia ago who first began working for political freedom, working to change, working to care for the oppressed and the vulnerable in society. It was Christians who knew the love of Christ and his forgiveness who began calling for the abolition of slavery. Gregory of Nyssa, actually, as early as 370 AD, was the first one to start writing about the way that it was so inconsistent with what God taught in his Bible and the way that Jesus had died for all men to be saved that we should, as human beings, hold slaves. He pointed out that this was improper and not right in this world that God had made because of the gospel. It was Christians who first established orphanages and hospitals and universities because they were so changed by the rule and the reign of a sacrificial king, King Jesus. It was Christians who began traveling to the ends of the earth in order to share the love of Christ and to educate, to bring literacy and well-being and to teach that Jesus is the Jesus who can forgive you of your sins. He's the one who can bring an end to the shame and the guilt that you feel every day. He's the one whose blood can cleanse you and bring you home into relationship with the God that you long for. And this was only the beginning, and is only the beginning of his kingdom. So you might protest, you might say, no, but Brant, you don't realize all is not right with this world. I know that. All is not right. And Jesus' reign as king has not peeled back all of the darkness yet, even though his kingdom is growing and his church is increasing. His rule is at work and it will not stop until it is finished. Soon the Bible promises that Jesus will return with a sword to judge this world, to punish wickedness and to vindicate the righteous and to make all things right. Jesus himself declares at the very end of the Bible in Revelation verse 22 or verse 12 of chapter 22, he says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus is the king who is promised. He is ruling now and he will return to finally finish his rule in this world. So Jesus is the truth that God has promised in the midst of our confusion. He is the king who rules in justice. But he is also the true and better priest. He's the one who will finally atone for our sin before a holy God and draw us deeply into relationship with that God. You see, before Jesus could ascend to his throne in heaven as a proclaimer of truth and the ruler of all, Jesus first had to suffer as the priest And as a sacrifice for sins. Look at our last point. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this. When you hurt someone, what will make it right? What can atone for your guilt? What is needed to make forgiveness possible? Reconciliation is a very popular word today. 
But the most extreme voices for reconciliation, they're the ones that we tend to overlook, uh, to overlook and to disregard for a reason. We overlook and disregard them because they demand something that seems so radical to us. They demand that past evils be atoned for, and sometimes they even demand that blood must be spilled. But are they wrong? I mean, think of the horrors of slavery. Slaves raped and beaten and killed. Children screaming and crying as a father is pulled away and sold to another place, another person, as a family is permanently separated. Or think of the wrongs that have happened in our own country, in our own short history. Think of Japanese internment or residential schools and even, even other social wrongs that we experience here. And ask yourself the question, what can atone for these wrongs? What can make them right? What can bring forgiveness? More money? Lands returned? Will that be enough? Christ throughout history, the universal human impulse in the face of great suffering and wrongdoing is that blood must be spilled. We all believe this at some level. Revenge movies are incredibly bloody for a reason. And they're also incredibly popular for a reason because we long at some level for things to be made right through the shedding of blood. At some level, we know that sin requires death. At some level, we know that a bloody atonement is necessary. We just like to think that we're not the ones that have sinned. We just like to think that we're not the ones whose blood needs to be spilled. But the biblical perspective on human sin isn't that just Western nations and perpetuators of injustice are guilty. The Bible's perspective is that at the end of the day, none of us can stand before a holy God and say, I have done right. But all are brought to our knees before him and are guilty before him because of our great sin. Whether you are the most minoritized person in this world or the most privileged European, God sees the abhorrent selfishness that is in your heart. He knows the unbelievable hurt that you have caused others. He knows that you routinely snub him who has created you and given you the life that you enjoy. He's given you the breath within your lungs. He's given the body that you have and the capacity for your enjoyment and the pleasures that you do have in this world. And yet you don't thank him and you've turned away from him. Who can atone for our sin? How can we as humanity be forgiven? Must we all die? Well, throughout the Bible, God taught his people. He taught them the seriousness of human sin. Our sin against one another and ultimately how all of that is just sin against God most of all. And he gave them a sacrificial system where priests mediated between God and man, atoning for sin through blood sacrifice. And yet even the ancient Israelite must have wondered, as they came over and over to sacrifice again and again, wondering whether this was enough. How can a bull or a lamb or this bird, this dove or this pigeon, how can it really stand in my place? How can its blood spilt on my behalf be enough for me? Can it truly make me right before God? Can these things truly bring me into a right relationship and closeness of intimacy with the God of the universe? And the answer is no. 
They can't. Which is why throughout the Bible, a greater priest and a greater sacrifice was constantly prophesied. Often it was foreshadowed in places like Exodus 12, uh, where the idea of the Passover lamb, the one whose blood was shed, allowed God's destroying angel to pass by the people of Israel. At other times it was directly prophesied in places like Isaiah 53, where we read about the one, the suffering servant who must come and die so that the people might be forgiven. But then we come to clarity in a place like Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 to 7, where the author reflects on the Old Testament on Psalm 40 and reflects on Jesus in the way that only he could come to do away with sacrifice and to reconcile us with God. In Hebrews 10, verses 3 to 7, we read this. But in these sacrifices, it's the Old Testament sacrifices that were repeated all the time, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of, goat, of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A human body you have prepared for me, your son. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What can wash away my sins? What can wash away yours? The Bible teaches nothing but the blood of Jesus. And all throughout Scripture, a greater sacrifice was prophesied. A greater priest must bring us through his sacrifice into the presence of God. Here's the equation. Human sin requires human death. And we all have sinned. So what's necessary is that we all must die or a greater human, one human whose blood is so unbelievably valuable must die for us so that all of our sin can be atoned for. And that equation Throughout Scripture, points to only one thing. God himself would have to become human. And God himself would have to die to cover all of our sin. And Christ City, the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, he did. I want you to stop and look back at that passage in Hebrews now, and I want you to look at it again, picturing Jesus on the cross, speaking the words of Psalm 40 to his Father. As he died, saying, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, The Son, the pre existent Son and Creator of heaven and earth, I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And God was born a human. So that as a human, he could die for us to bring us into the presence of God. Christ City, in conclusion, in conclusion, you see, the Bible taught all of this about Jesus. The Bible taught that Jesus, the coming Messiah, would be more gloriously exalted than any human who has ever lived. 
And the Bible also taught that Jesus, the coming Messiah, would be more deeply humiliated and shamed than anyone who would come before or after. The Bible taught that the path up to glory for Jesus was a path down in humiliation and death, that exaltation would only come through suffering. As God became human to become a servant, to die dehumanized on a cruel torture instrument, and to be rejected as a sinner and separated from the Father. And on the road to Emmaus, this is what Jesus told his disciples as they walked. He showed it to them from the Bible. He showed it to them in far more detail than I've had time to do in this sermon. And Jesus knew that the better world that we and the disciples longed for would only come if he came and suffered and died. Jesus knew that his whole life as a human being, he knew that he was that Savior, that he was the one who must die. He had the Bible open before him, reading the story of his life and of his death. I want you to see this. The very fact that there are prophecies in the Bible, it shows us something about the heart of Jesus. It shows us that since the very beginning, far before Jesus came, that he was intent on accomplishing our salvation. That before you and I were even born, he was already promising that he would come in fulfillment of all that you and I need. It shows us that God has been planning our salvation, been intent on it, faithfully loving and pursuing us since before we even existed. You see, God loves us to death. Why? Is it because he needs us so badly that something's missing up in heaven? That he just had to sacrifice what was necessary in order to bring us there with him? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God has no need from us. He's not served by us. He's content eternally living in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fellowship for all time and happiness and joy. He has no need of us. No, the Bible teaches that he came and he suffered. He was prophesied that he would come and suffer because he loves us. Because he is committed to our salvation. Though we read of Jesus weeping in the garden before his death, we read in Luke twenty-two forty-two, just before he's betrayed and crucified, that he's weeping and praying and crying out to God, is there some other way as sweat drops of blood fall off his body? We see that Jesus, even in that place, is committed to our salvation. As he says, not my will, but yours be done. There's a theologian named Donald McLeod, and he writes about Jesus' sacrifice this way. This is beautiful. He says, The wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this Jesus? What do we do taking away truths from this sermon? How do we apply them to our lives this week? Well, the first thing we need to do, Christ City, is worship. Worship as you realize that a prophesied Jesus 
equals a far more loving Jesus than we maybe have ever realized. A prophesied Jesus shows us that God is for us. If you're doubting that this week, if you're not sure that God loves you, remember who Jesus is. That he was prophesied far before you were born to come and to save you. He loves you. He cares for you. His sacrifice for sin is sufficient for you. He forgives you. He welcomes you. He draws you into his own presence because of his own sacrifice. Worship him. And the second thing, the last thing we do in response to a sermon like this one, is that we need to be encouraged to take up our Bibles and read. I hope that you get a taste from the road to Emmaus and from the, the small effort in this sermon to see that Jesus is writ large on every page of Scripture. It's not just the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of his life. It's all of Scripture, but there's this great interconnected web pointing to and foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. All of the Bible is about him. All of the Bible tells his story. Yes, it's difficult in many places. It's hard to understand, but the more you study it, the more you understand it. The more you grow to see Jesus in his depth, not just a little bit that you know now, but see him in the breadth of his character. And the more that you see him in the breadth of his character, the more you'll be led to worship him. The more you'll be changed by him as someone in his kingdom who will be more effective to do his will to his eternal glory on this earth. Christ City, as we close, let me just say this. Remember that what this world needs most, more than anything else, is for us to see Jesus. For us to see him in his glory and in his humility. For us to be captured by his love. So we be changed by him to become like him. Let's go forth this week singing his praises and being willing to speak of him to others.